Well, uh, this morning we're going to be talking about John Calvin. Uh, and I tell you, if I had 12 hours to talk to you about John Calvin, maybe I would feel like I could scratch the surface. Um, you know, a lot of historians tell us Martin Luther was the greatest man of the last millennium. That is from uh, A.D. 1000 through A.D. 1999. Uh, um, and I think probably that's right. But a super close follow-up, I think, would be John Calvin. I think, indeed, the Western world owes an enormous debt to John Calvin, to all that God did through this man. And uh, of all the heroes of the Reformation, he is my biggest hero. I, I admire him just immensely. And very sadly, he has, in many ways, a terribly tarnished reputation. Uh, a lot of people just automatically turn uh, hostile when they hear of Calvinism. Uh, they think of John Calvin as somehow a, a rather nasty character. I think the exact opposite of John Calvin. I think he was not only one of the greatest men of the last millennium, uh, and indeed one of the greatest men of the whole of the history of the Christian church, but I also think that he was one of the most loving and one of the most humble and gentle and uh, truly fine men of all of that time. Well, I, you'll notice that I've titled this unit, John Calvin and the Widening Reformation. Now the previous unit, I titled Martin Luther and the German Reformation. So why did I not title this unit uh, John Calvin and the Genevan or Swiss Reformation. Uh, after all, if Luther is with the German, why not Calvin with the Swiss or more narrowly the Genevan Reformation? Well, it's because, frankly, during the period of the Reformation itself, the Lutheran movement was fairly narrowly circumscribed in ways that the Reformed movement associated with the teaching of John Calvin was not. Um, <clears throat> after the Reformation, Lutheranism as a movement had a renewal, so to speak, and it overcame many of these uh, circumscriptions, many of these narrow boundaries. But during the Reformation itself, it was fairly narrowly circumscribed uh, theologically, uh, it refused to cooperate with other reformers outside the Lutheran movement. And it was one of, the, one of the strong marks and one of the, I think, the very godly marks of the Reformed, the Calvinistic branch of that movement, or we should actually say the Calvinistic is a, a narrower piece of the Reformed, branch of the movement, that it was always reaching out to join hands with others in the Reformation. Uh, if, if we can say that uh, Lutheranism is a, a branch of Protestantism and Reformed faith is a branch of Protestantism, the Reformed faith always had the vision of Protestantism united, whereas Lutheranism, largely because Martin Luther himself refused to have fellowship at the most important level, that is of being willing to share in the Lord's Supper together with those who didn't have his exact same view 
of the Lord's Supper, the idea that the body that that the actual body and and blood of Christ were in with and under the bread and the wine in the Eucharist, because Luther refused to have uh, the most intimate fellowship. Indeed, even sometimes uh, refused to call those who disagreed with him about that Christians at all. The Lutheran movement was always theologically much narrower, and therefore also ecclesiastically. It refused to unite with most of the Reformed, and that continued to be the case for hundreds of years. In the last roughly century and a half, uh, we've seen the united Reformed churches, or the the, uh, united church movement in the continent, in Europe, Uh, starting to overcome that, and I think that's a good thing. Um, Lutheranism uh, was also fairly narrowly confined liturgically. Martin Luther wanted to keep in practice all of the parts of the Roman Catholic liturgy that were not explicitly forbidden by Scripture, whereas John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and the others in the Reformed movement said, you know, uh, they they wanted to uh, cease doing any part of liturgy that was not actually required in Scripture. And so, as a result, the Lutherans had a tough time cooperating with the Reformed in worship. Politically, Uh, especially because of what is called the Peasants' Revolt or the Peasants' Rebellion in the 1520s, uh, the Lutheran movement became fairly narrowly restricted because so many people began to see Lutheranism as the root of social unrest. They saw that the peasants had rebelled against their, their rulers in the German society and so they, they didn't want to go along with that. Uh, and that kept Lutheranism from spreading in some important ways. Uh, socially also, Lutheranism was hindered by that. And therefore also it was hindered geographically. Basically the Lutheran movement, as of the end of the Reformation, was strong essentially in northern Germany and beginning to get into parts of Scandinavia and be strong there. But the Reformed movement was strong all over Western Europe, into Scandinavia, into Britain, and even into the New World. Uh, And indeed, Geneva sent missionaries to Latin America. There were missionaries from Geneva in Brazil during John Calvin's lifetime, which is a rather amazing thing. Calvin's influence in all of these was the primary reason for the Reformed movement's transcendence whereas the Lutheran movement had not been so widely uh, spread. Uh, Why did the Lutheran movement lose so much momentum in the 1530s? In the 1520s, the Reformed movement had clearly had the initiative and Rome was on the defensive. But in the 1530s, the Reformation lost momentum, particularly the Lutheran Reformation, uh, because of the Peasants' Revolt that I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, which led Luther and his disciples in reaction against the chaos of the Peasants' Revolt, which led to 
some at least 30,000 and some estimates go as high as 100,000 deaths. Uh, in reaction against that, Luther and his disciples embraced the notion that the state, the magistrates, the, the officials of the state should be in charge of the church. And this is why we have state churches. The, the, uh, the Lutheran church is the official state church in Germany and in, uh, in Sweden and in Norway. Has been for hundreds of years. How's that going for them? The faith has largely died out in those places. And it is where the church is free that it remains strong and, and vibrant. Uh, also, um, many spiritually minded Roman Catholics had been very sympathetic to much of the Reformation. From right when Martin Luther posted his theses in 1517, right on up into the 1520s, the early 1520s at least. But when they saw the peasants' revolt, they were deeply disturbed. And they said, if this is what Reformation means, we're not going there. This tears society apart. It leads to chaos. And so they saw the papacy, not state churches, but the papacy as the means of preserving social order and of preserving the church's independence from the state. See, Lutheranism basically made the church dependent on the state. Romanism wanted to keep the church independent of the state. And then there was uh, the disaster at Münster, uh, which tarnished the reputation of the Reformation. I could spend an hour and a half or so just talking about this. But in essence, what happened at Münster was that a small group of what we call the radical Anabaptists, who wanted to rid themselves of all the teaching of the church since the time of the apostles and start afresh, as if that were even possible, uh, the radical Anabaptists managed to take over the government of the, the small city of Münster in Germany, and they initiated their own program of social order, which included uh, the denial of private property, the equal sharing of all wealth within Münster, and since, after all, were wives were part of wealth, uh, that meant the equal sharing of wives. So they instituted not just polygamy, but indeed complete sharing of women. Well, that didn't go over real well with some of the people in Münster. Uh, many of the people in Münster had actually fled. The natives of Münster had fled. But many of those who were stuck there and hadn't been able to get away, they, along with the great reformers on the Lutheran side, the great reformers on the reformed side, this is before John Calvin was even uh, converted to Christ, but Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli in, in, uh, in, in Switzerland had been preaching the Reformation doctrines even before Luther posted his theses. The Lutherans, the Reformed, and the Roman Catholics all saw what was happening in Münster and were deeply disturbed that this was going to bring about a, a widening revolution all across Europe. And so together, they called upon the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, to send troops to put down this uh, rebellion in Münster. And that indeed happened, and it cost many, many thousands of lives. Uh, that was seen as, oh, that's what Reformation's all about? The Roman Catholics in particular said, oh, all the reformers want this kind of thing. 
Well, um, that's what slowed the Reformation during the 1520s. Uh, there are five key figures of the Reformed movement, far more than these are important people, but these are particularly key. I wish I could go into uh, some detail about every one of them, but I can't. Ulrich Zwingli, who led the Reformation in Zurich, Switzerland, began teaching justification by faith without works earlier than Luther did. Uh, Martin Bootser, who led the Reformation in Strasbourg, sought the unity of, uh, of its Lutheran and Reformed branches. He became one of my great heroes just a few weeks ago when I re- read a wonderful big biography of him and discovered that he was a far greater person than I had recognized before. Uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli uh, was an Italian Augustinian friar, theologian, humanist scholar. Uh, one historian uh, described him as a treasury of knowledge on the early church fathers. He was what was called a Catholic evangelical. He wanted to remain within the Roman Catholic Church uh, and yet to adopt the evangelical teaching of Martin Luther. And he led what became the Protestant delegation at the Colloquy of Poissy in 1561, much later than this. This was an effort by Protestants of Lutheran and Reformed uh, background and Roman Catholics of evangelical persuasion to set forth a sort of a, 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 a consensus among them that could have led to the reunification of the church at that time. Uh, It came very close, and unfortunately it hung up on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. That's one of the great tragedies of of church history, is that this Lord's Supper, which is supposed to uh, signify in part the unity of the body of Christ, has in so many ways been one of the issues over which there's been so much division. Heinrich Bulliger. Uh, who, uh, who was convinced by his studies of the church fathers uh, that uh, Luther's opposition to the indulgences was right, embraced the Reformation, succeeded Zwingli in Zurich, and he was the early developer of what we later come to call covenant theology, a brilliant man. He wrote a, a series of sermons, 10 sets of 10 sermons apiece, called The Decades, in which he uh, preached through the catechism, preached through the, uh, the uh, uh, Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and all of these things. And in that series of sermons, he developed the doctrine of covenant or covenant theology. And that, in turn, shaped a great deal of the theology of the English Puritans and the Scottish Presbyterians later on. All of these were ordained clergy in the Roman Catholic Church, or I should put it in simply the Catholic Church, because up to the time of the 1520s and 1530s, there was not a clear split yet. The Roman Catholic Church had not held the Council of Trent and had not dogmatized the doctrines that separated it from the Reformers. One who never was uh, ordained as a clergyman, at least as far as any historical evidence can show, was John Calvin. Yet he was the pastor of St. Peter's in in Geneva from 1541 to 1564, his death, 
and he simply preached and he taught, and we'll see in a minute how much he did. Uh, Calvin never was to Reformed Protestantism the dominating figure that Luther was to Lutheranism. Uh, so these other men that I've just mentioned, they played stronger roles within the Reformed movement than anybody but Luther did in the Lutheran movement, uh, even Melanchthon. Uh, Calvin was born in 1509 in Noyon, northeastern France. He was the son of a church lawyer and was very much of upper class uh, lineage. In fact, while he was a student at the University of Paris, uh, one one. Uh, Protestant brother came to him and greeted him as Brother John, and he corrected him and said, you are supposed to call me Monsieur, you know, because he was part of the upper class. Uh, he studied at the University of Paris uh, when his father first steered him toward the priesthood from 1523 to 1528, where he was introduced to the humanist uh, tradition, which we discussed earlier. Uh, he learned Latin under Mathurin Cordier, one of the great Latinists of the time. Uh, he embraced conciliarism, uh, which was uh, taught there in Paris by a Scotsman by the name of, of John Mayer, or Major. Uh, and it's unclear from, from the historical evidence whether Major ever was actually Calvin's teacher directly. Most Calvin historians thought so until about the last oh, 80 years or so, and more careful research into the, into the archives of the University of Paris uh, fails to find that Calvin was actually enrolled in any of Major's classes. Doesn't mean he wasn't, because the records are not always complete. If you've ever studied the university education in that period, you know that. Uh, we don't lose transcripts so readily nowadays. They did easily back then. But at any rate, John Mayer, or Major, uh, was a very important figure, and he taught conciliarism. That is, that church councils are more authoritative than popes. That was an important contribution to Calvin's thought. And uh, Calvin encountered there the via moderna, the, which I mentioned last week, the commitment to humility, repentance, simplicity, and the imitation of Christ as sort of the essence of the Christian life. Uh, he studied theology toward the priesthood from 1523 to 1527, but uh, when his father quarreled with the canons of Noyon Cathedral in 1528, his father said, let's not send you into the priesthood after all, pursue law. And I think that was a, a marvelous instance of God's providence because Calvin's studies in law equipped him to do reasoning, to do debate, to argue in ways that were extremely compelling. Uh, he was surely uh, the greatest arguer, so to speak, and I, by that I don't mean being nasty, I mean putting together well-reasoned, cogent arguments for conclusions among any of the uh, reformed leaders. So in 1528, he switched to law studies at the University of Orléans and Bourget after his father quarreled there. Uh, and to a, to a far greater degree than the young Luther, the early Calvin was a typical Christian humanist scholar. Luther was much more uh, narrowly educated in terms of his Augustinian theological background. Calvin was much more broadly educated. Uh, after his father's death in 1531, 
Calvin decided, I really don't want to pursue law as my career. So he switched from law to humanism at the Collège de France in Paris, mastered Hebrew and Greek under France's greatest Christian humanist reformer, Jacques Lefebvre de Table. I don't know how to speak French, but anyway. Uh, and in 1532, he published his first book, a commentary on the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca's De Clementia of Mercy. And his book was recognized as a work of great brilliance. Uh, many humanist scholars uh, spoke very, very highly of it. Um, sometime in the period 1532 to 1534, John Calvin was conver converted from the Christian humanism, so to speak, to Protestantism. We don't know for sure just exactly how it happened. There's only one place in all of his writings where he explicitly, clearly writes about it, and that is in, his, in the preface to his commentary on the Psalms, where he says, Since I was more stubbornly addicted to the superstitions of the papacy than to be easily pulled out of that deep swamp, by a sudden conversion, God subdued my heart, too hardened for one so young, to a teachable spirit, Thus, having gained some taste of true godliness, I burned with great zeal to make progress. Although I did not give up my former studies, I pursued them with less enthusiasm. And a year had not passed when all who desired this purer doctrine flocked to me, newcomer and beginner though I was, in order to learn it. In other words, Calvin, brand new to the, reform, to the, to the Protestant faith, within a year had the reputation as perhaps the greatest teacher of it, and people were flocking to him to learn about it. Now, there was one other place where many scholars think that Calvin wrote about his conversion, and I think uh, I want to quote it to you uh, because it's, it's uh, quite fascinating. In, um, oops, turn the book right side up, that helps. There we go. Um, <clears throat> when, and this comes from later in his life, when Geneva had become very solidly Protestant reformed, uh, Calvin had been pastor there for a, or a reader of scripture there for several years and then the Genevan uh, authorities had driven him and William Farrell, the other reformer there, out of the city because the, the authorities didn't want to give to the church the authority to do church discipline, to ban from communion if people were uh, unrepentant in their sins. Well, while Calvin was away during this period, and we'll talk about it a bit more later, um, a, a Roman Catholic cardinal, Jacopo Sadoletto, wrote a letter to the leaders of Geneva urging them to, uh, to come back to the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a very persuasive letter. It was very well argued. Nobody in Geneva knew how to answer it. So they sent it on to John Calvin and asked him if he would write a response, which Calvin did. And it's a wonderful, brilliant response. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, but in there, he writes, he takes on the persona of a Protestant layman. And he writes from that perspective. And here is part of what he writes. And many scholars think that he's actually describing here his own conversion. He says, I, O oh Lord, as I had been educated from a boy, always professed the Christian faith. But at first I had no other reason for my faith than that which then everywhere prevailed, 
The rudiments in which I had been instructed were of a kind which could neither properly train me to the legitimate worship of your deity, nor pave the way for me to a sure hope of salvation. The method of attaining salvation, which my teachers pointed out, was by making satisfaction to you for offenses. When, however, I had performed all the works of satisfaction they told me to perform, I was still far off from true peace of conscience. Notice the, the likeness to Luther's experience here. For whenever I descended into myself or raised my mind to you, extreme terror seized me, terror which no expiations or satisfactions of mine could cure. Still, as nothing better offered, I continued the course which I had begun, when, lo, a very different form of doctrine started up, not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought it back to its fountainhead. Notice the humanist influence there, right? And as it were, clearing away the dross, restored it to its original purity. Offended by its novelty, I lent an unwilling ear, and at first, I confess, strenuously and passionately resisted it. For one thing in particular made me averse to those new teachers, namely my reverence for the church. But when I opened my ears and allowed myself to be taught, I perceived that this fear of derogating the majesty of the church was groundless, for they reminded me of many of the church's errors by taking me to the scriptures. They told me, moreover, as a means of pricking my conscience, that I, I could not safely connive at these things as if they concerned me not, that so far are you from patronizing any voluntary error that even he who is led by astray by mere ignorance does not err with impunity. You, God, he's, remember, he's talking to God here. My mind being now prepared for serious attention, I at length perceived, as if light had broken in upon me, in what a style of error I had wallowed, and how much pollution and impurity I had thereby contracted, being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen, and much more at that which threatened me in the view of eternal death, I made it my first business to betake myself to your way, condemning my past life, not without groans and tears. And now, O Lord, what remains to a wretch like me, but instead of defense, earnestly to supplicate you, not to judge according to its deserts, that fearful abandonment of your word, from which, in your wondrous goodness, you have at last delivered me. I think that's, that's quite likely a description of his conversion. Well, in 1536, notice this is just a few years after his conversion to the Protestant faith. And it's when he is only 26 years old he publishes the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. An absolutely amazing thing. The occasion of this was that Francis I, the King of France, had in 1535 accused French Protestants of being political rebels intent on overthrowing the government. Calvin, living at that point in Basel in Switzerland, aged 26, responded with a book that set forth the essence of the Protestant position and vindicated French Protestants. It was six chapters, and it was 520 pages short. <laughs> 520 pages short. Now, well, here's the, uh, here's the paperback edition, right, nowadays. 
that that clocks in at only gee only 689 pages this way, but it's pretty fine print. Um, here is my favorite edition of the Institutes. It's these two volumes, edited by John McNeil. And uh, if we get time, I'm going to quote a little bit from that, but I think we probably won't. But that clocks in at 1,521 pages, plus about 250 pages of indexes uh, and bibliography and neat things like that. Uh, this was, uh, the, the institutes were an instruction, a manual, a summary, uh, and they were pious, passionate, and practical. Uh, they have been called by Needham the clearest, most elegant, and best organized presentation of Reformation theology and spirituality, which had yet appeared, and I think they are the best ever. Uh, he revised them seven times in 1539 when he nearly doubled their length, and then again in 1543, 1545, 1550, 1553, 1554, and 1559. And he put them out in Latin and in French. And since then, they've been uh, translated into all the major languages. Uh, I have a former seminary student who online discovered a Korean Christian girl who was reading Calvin's Institutes in Korean. And he decided, she's going to be my wife. And indeed, she is. They live in, the <laughs> in uh, Wyoming now. Uh, the Institutes, says the great Presbyterian theologian Benjamin Warfield, lies at the foundation of the whole development of Protestant theology. Uh, they were the first serious attempt to cast into systematic form that body of truth to which the Reformed churches adhered. Uh, they met a crisis and created an epoch in the history of the churches with its calm, clear, positive expositions of the evangelical faith on the irrefragable authority of the Holy Scriptures gave stability to wavering minds and confidence to sinking hearts. Uh, the liberal theologian Albrecht Ritschel said there, there is the masterpiece of Protestant theology. Uh, the Yale church historian Williston Walker said that the Institutes marked its young author as the ablest interpreter of Christian doctrine that the Reformation age had produced and at once placed Calvin at the head of French reformers and revealed him in the highest degree as a man of leadership. The Institutes are structured to follow the structure of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, is the first article. The first part of the Institutes, book one, is the knowledge of God the Creator. Uh, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, article two. Book two, the knowledge of God the Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Article three, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Book three, the way we receive the grace of Christ, which Calvin says is all the work of the Holy Spirit. And, book, and, and article four, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Book four, the external means or aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ. So the structure of the Apostles' Creed is the structure of the Institutes. Um, now, Remember, Francis I had uh, intended to persecute the French Protestants and said that they were under, uh, undermining social order. Uh, Calvin was answering that, uh, and he wrote a major preface to the Institutes that was addressed as a letter to Francis. Uh, he did this as in prefaces to almost all of his works. 
He wrote to kings, he wrote to queens, he wrote to princes, he wrote to all sorts of different people in this way. This one was to Francis. And he did not ask for mercy for the French Protestants. Instead, he demanded justice. He did not argue for more than one church in a realm. That is, hey, let's, let's be open and free here, right? But rather argued that the evangelical Protestants were the legitimate heirs of the New Testament church, and therefore they were the one holy Catholic apostolic church, not the Roman Catholic church. Uh, he refuted Romanist charges against evangelical doctrine. The, Romans, the Romanists said the doctrine was new. Calvin said, no, it's the doctrine of the New Testament. They said it was unknown. No, Calvin said, the New Testament teaches it, and so do the church fathers. And the institutes overflowed with patristic quotations. Uh, Calvin knew the church fathers in just amazing ways. I wish I could quote for you a wonderful thing about what he did at one particular colloquium, but I can't. Uh, the Romanists said that Protestantism was uncertain. He said, no, so sure of its truthfulness that we fear neither the terrors of death nor God's judgment seat. Calvin described the Protestants, right? And the Romanists said, well, after all, the Protestants don't have any authenticating miracles. We have miracles to authenticate what we do, right? Uh, what we say. And he said, no, we have our authenticating miracles. Even the miracles of the New Testament that attest to the gospel taught by the apostles and the same gospel that we preach. Rome, having a new and different doctrine from that of the New Testament, requires new and different miracles. You see the twist of his argument there. Rome wouldn't need new miracles to attest its doctrine if its doctrine were just what was taught in the Bible, right? Moreover, Rome's miracles are counterfeit miracles originating with the devil. One of the things that the Romanists did was they, they, they tied the idea of miracles to relics, the miraculous preservation of the Virgin Mary's breast milk or uh, um, Jesus... I, I, I hate to say this, but the Romanists actually did this. A couple of different churches had the foreskin of Jesus from when he was circumcised as a boy. I mean, uh, there were all sorts of things. He wrote a whole treatise on the relics, and he listed all the different places where the thousands of relics were, including the things that were obviously doubled. And he wrote, for, for instance, of Mary's breast milk, that she would have had to have been a whole dairy farm to provide all the breast milk in all the different churches that, that claimed to have her breast milk, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, okay, so he said that the church fathers support evangelical, not Roman or, or uh, uh, Roman teaching uh, in, in doctrine and practice. Uh, he said that Rome's appeal to custom was an appeal against biblical truth. And he said that Rome's representation of, of the nature of the church lacked the marks of the true church, which he said were the pure preaching of God's word and the lawful administration of the sacraments. And the history of church councils refuted the papal claim to supremacy. And he went into great depth about that, showing how church councils had again and again overruled popes. He also showed how the church councils had contradicted each other. And then finally, he said that, the, that, the Rome, uh, that Rome had wrongly blamed evangelicals for the tumults that were, cost, uh, that were caused by Anabaptists and other radicals, not by the evangelicals. Well, um, in 1536, Calvin set out for Strasbourg for a quiet scholar's life. That's what he wanted. Uh, but because of a war between Francis I and Charles I, he had to make a detour into Geneva, 
Uh, Geneva by this time had become Protestant in 1535 under William Farrell, the Elijah of the French Reformation, and Peter or Pierre Vivet. Uh, when Calvin sought to leave Geneva after detouring there, William Farrell threatened him with the curse of Almighty God if he preferred the scholar's life of study to the work and cause of Christ in, in Geneva. Uh, terrified, Calvin stayed from September 1536 to April 1538 without pay as reader in Holy Scripture. He sought to make church discipline independent of city government, and the city re- rulers refused, and in April 1538 they drove him and Farrell out of Geneva. Well, he went then to Strasbourg, where he had wanted to go and lead a quiet scholar's life. He labored there with Bootser, organized and pastored a French-speaking congregation in 1538-41 to and developed Reformed liturgy. In October 1541, Geneva called him back. The city had descended into near chaos. Uh, Sexual uh, libertinism ruled the city practically. And they figured the only person we know who can bring things back into control is this quiet scholarly preacher in Strasbourg. And so they pleaded with him to come back. Calvin wrote to Farrell that he would rather endure a hundred deaths than that cross. (laughs) But indeed he went back. He wrote to Farrell again, had I the choice at my disposal, nothing would be less agreeable to me than to follow your advice to return. But when I remember that I am not my own, that became one of, the Calvin, one of Calvin's mottos. I am not my own. I offer up my heart, presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. I submit my will and my affections, subdued and held fast to the obedience of God. His crest had on it the Latin, Cormeum tibi ofero domine prompte et sincere. My heart to thee I offer, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Isn't that a beautiful idea? All right, well, I want to quickly talk about Calvin's personality and character. His highest aim was the glory of God. He was also known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. People aren't aware of that. But the Holy Spirit just is all through the institutes, all through his commentaries, all through his sermons. Liberal church historian Adolf von Harnack called him the man who never smiled. And though false, that description stuck with many people in the 20th century. But Benjamin Warfield corrected him. Calvin taught that laughter is the gift of God and he held it to be the right or rather the duty of the Christian man to practice it in its due season. He is constantly joking with his friends in his letters and he eagerly joins with them in all the joys of life. I wish I were with you for a half a day to laugh with you, he wrote in one letter. He enjoyed a joke hugely with that open-mouthed laugh. And he was a tender man. When his wife, Idolette de Bur, died early, he wrote, I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, who, if our lot had been harsher, would have been not only the willing sharer of exile and poverty, but even of death. While she lived, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. What a lovely man. 
Nick Needham summarized Calvin's character this way. Calvin was basically a gentle, quiet, long-suffering person who hated controversy and took part in it only when a high sense of duty compelled him. He had none of Luther's love of a good fight. If Calvin's personality seems less colorful and attractive than Luther's, the reason is that Calvin was a very shy and reserved man who hardly ever spoke about himself. Still, he was not a harsh and miserable individual. He was a tender husband, stricken by his wife's early death. He enjoyed many warm and enduring friendships, especially with Melanchthon and Farrell, or Farrell. He rejoiced in the early gifts of God, the earthly gifts of God, pardon me. Natural beauty, food, drink, family, friendship, art, music, these things were very good. Calvin had no doubt of that. Yet the kingly service of Jesus Christ and his gospel was infinitely greater and more glorious. To that service, the soul of Calvin was consecrated. He expected every other believer to be as dedicated as himself. Now, Calvin was also a man who suffered almost constant illness. Uh, He had chronic ague, a general term for fevers and other maladies, most likely malaria. Chronic catarrh, inflammation of the nasal mucous membrane. Chronic asthma, chronic indigestion, migraine migraine headaches, arthritis, ulcerative hemorrhoids, chronic gum disease, uh, chronic pleurisy, an inflammation of the lining around the lungs, which is sharply painful every time you take a breath. Once he had quartan fever, particularly a, a, a particular variety of malaria, his body was constantly racked with pain. Nonetheless, he preached every Sunday and on three weekdays some 4,000 sermons during the period from 1541 to 1564, his death. 174 sermons per year. He lectured on theology twice a week. He attended weekly meeting of consistory, the board of governors of the church, every Thursday. He expounded the Bible every Friday at the assembly. He wrote commentaries, 23 volumes in the Calvin 500 edition from Baker Bookhouse, on most books of the Bible in Latin and in French. He wrote three catechisms and several national confessions of faith. He wrote many theological treatises. He wrote 4,271 letters, which fill ten and a half volumes to kings, other statesmen, pastors, friends, and even to heretics. And the total works fill 64 large volumes of small print. Oh, goodness, we're down to two minutes. I can't believe it. Uh, Here are five general characteristics of the Institutes. They're biblical. They're reformed, they're dogmatic, they're persuasive, and they're pastoral. They're not a summa theologica, but a summa pietatus. My heart to thee I offer, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Uh, They made many major contributions. Knowledge of God depends on knowledge of self. Knowledge of self depends on knowledge of God. The stress on scripture as spectacles to read natural revelation. The stress on the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which, without which the sinner is blind. The stress on the Bible as the sole ground of all true knowledge. The doctrine of the Son and the Spirit as autotheotic. Their, their deity is not derived from the deity of the Father. Uh, the stress on the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the treatment of Christ's work under the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, the development of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Probably Calvin's uh, development of that doctrine was greater than any theologian who had come before him. Uh, He advocated justification by faith alone and predestination, restating Augustine's and the Bible's doctrines of sin and grace, and so on. Um, 
I have to quit. But I want to, I'm going to skip over some stuff here. You can get the whole, whole PPTX from me, the PowerPoint from me. But I have to say this about Calvin's impact on the social order. Uh, in Geneva and far, far beyond Geneva. First of all, in Geneva, Calvin did bring that, or the Lord through him, brought that tremendous moral reform from the dissolute place that it was when the leaders called him back to what John Knox called the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles. It was an amazing city to live in. Surely the most wonderful city in all of Europe to live in. Um, he, uh, he taught Christian vocation. That is, every, every life calling is a vocation from God and is sacred to God. And what became known as the Protestant work ethic, which contributed so much to the growth of the Industrial Revolution and the delivery of mankind out of universal and, and abject poverty. Uh, he founded a truly Christian, uh, a truly Protestant church independent of the state. In 1555, Genevan magistrates at last affirmed the church's right to ban impenitent members from communion. Uh, he founded the Genevan Academy, the first Protestant university, and graduates from there ministered as pastors and missionaries all over Europe and into the New World. He, he and, and the uh, others working there with him founded hospitals in Geneva and then elsewhere around the world. Uh, uh, I've lost my spot here. Uh, uh, they cared for the poor by a very carefully structured program of the deacons. Uh, they ministered to over 6,000 Protestant refugees who were living in Geneva, and that's in a city with a resident population of only about 13,000. Almost half the people, imagine half the people in the total United States, all recent refugees. And finally, religious freedom and limited government. Calvin laid the foundation in the Institutes and in his Laws of Ecclesiastical Order, that's not the exact title, he laid the foundation for Presbyterianism, which is a representative constitutional government in church and in state. The Republican form, small r, right, of government in the United States is basically Presbyterianism applied to civil government. He spurred what was called Calvinist resistance theory, a line of thinkers who resisted the idea of royal absolutism. The king's word is law. No, the king is under the law. Uh, with people like John Knox, Theodore Beza, Unius Brutus, George Buchanan, Johannes Althusius, the Covenanters, uh, including Samuel Rutherford, who wrote the book Lex Rex, The Law is King. Uh, Algernon Sidney, John Locke, and more were all in this, in this series. Leopold von Ranke and J.H. Merle d'Aubigné called him the virtual founder of America. Isn't that amazing? Uh, John Adams said, let not Geneva be forgotten or despised. Religious liberty owes that city most respect. An American historian, George Bancroft, one of the greatest American historians ever, uh, wrote, he that will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. Well, uh, I have to stop, but may the, Lord, may the Lord prick your conscience to aspire to be something, something like John Calvin. At least in this, my heart 
To thee, O Lord, I give. Promptly and sincerely. And may this, I, I ask, challenge all of us to get off our lazy duffs and be intent on learning more of the Christian faith, learning more of church history. Let's pray quickly. Father, oh, there is so much more. I do pray that we would, we would be self-disciplined and diligent to learn. You tell us that your people perish for lack of knowledge. Light a fire under us, I pray, that we might follow the example of this, this great and humble man. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.